found once again in the ver- uh, book of First Timothy. We'll be looking at verses uh, six through five. We'll pick up where we left off to First of Timothy, verses two through five. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Please pray with me. Lord, we, we again admit that we need your help every moment of the day, but especially as we come before your word. Because we know that it is by your word that we will be judged, that we'll help be held accountable. And so, Father, we want to not only rightly understand it, but we want to we want to apply it rightly. We want to follow it. We want to live according to it. And Lord, for that we need grace. We need grace to understand, but we need grace to live it out. And so we pray that you would be merciful to me, so that I could be helpful to the rest of us as we seek to wrestle with your teaching regarding false teachers. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As you know, anatomy is the science of uh, the structural makeup of the human body. And it comes actually from the Greek word anatome, which actually means to dissect, to take apart. And of course, that's what you do in an anatomy course, is you dissect various dead things. In high school, it was fetal pigs. In, I think in college, you dissect cats. And of course, when you get to med school, you dissect actual human cadavers. And of course, many of you are, are um, homeschooling families. They're, we're not held back by such restrictions. Um, and I'm, I'm quite sure that probably by fifth grade, um, the Liddells will be working on you know, actual cadavers by that time. Um, I have entitled this message, The Anatomy of False Teacher, for two reasons. First of all, the passage not only describes what false teachers teach, but it actually gets into the inner workings of the false teacher. What are their motives? What are their desires? Why do they twist the Word of God? And also, uh, Paul chooses to use a number of unique words that actually relate to physical health. He's using medical terminology, actually, a few times here. It's as if he's describing false teachers by, as those who are corrupted by some terminal illness. Now, the, the importance of studying anatomy, human anatomy, is obvious. Because as we understand the human body, we can better understand diseases that attack it so that we can protect it. It also just helps us understand what a healthy body looks like. We are, we're able to learn what diseases do to a body so we can help protect it and, and, and ward off such diseases. But also, seeing a healthy body helps us to, to incentivize uh, guarding ourselves from germs and diseases and other things that would destroy the human body. I remember as a child seeing the pictures of uh, what a chain smoker's lung looked like. And that was enough... <laughs> to make me not want to smoke. Um, I've also remembered as an adult hearing what uh, the Ebola virus does to the human uh, organs. And that was an, it more or less liquefies them. That was enough to make me not want to go into any place where there's an Ebola outbreak. But the disease that Paul addresses in 1 Timothy 6 is actually far more destructive than Ebola. 
the consequences are far worse than any other infectious disease because the false teaching Paul is referring to, as he says in First Timothy chapter one verse six, or sorry, one verse nineteen, is that this is the false teaching that leads people to actually make shipwreck of their faith. In other words, this false teaching is leading people away from the truth and straight to hell, from which there is no cure. If a person rejects Christ, there is no hope of salvation. And so this is really far more dangerous than anything a person could face in this world. And it's not just dangerous. False teaching is not just dangerous for unbelievers. Recognize that Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to Timothy to warn the church about teachers in the church that are false teaching. In fact, all the letters that are written by the apostles in the New Testament warning about false teachers are written to people in the church. And so this, is, this should not just um, come to us like water off a duck's back. But we need to receive this teaching and not be naive that such teaching can't creep into even this church. Or to fail to realize that false teaching actually comes at us not only in churches, but in anywhere that we hear messages about what we deserve or what is a claim to truth. The Apostle Peter writes, But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought them, bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Again, he's writing to Christians. He's saying, expect this. Expect it. It's, it's destructive. Heresy. This is why... Paul warned the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And among your own selves, people will arise speaking twisted things in order to draw away the disciples after them. Paul is speaking to the very same elders that are heading the church of Ephesus. Quite likely, some of those elders were the ones leading people astray, maybe even the two that were called out in chapter 1 for making shipwreck of their faith. And so when Paul wrote, it was no empty words. Or when he spoke to the elders, it was no empty words. When he writes to Timothy, he, he's blood earnest about this. If he were here today, he wouldn't say, oh, you guys don't need to worry about this because this is grace and truth. No, he'd say, you need to be as worried as anybody in any church that false teaching could creep into. It is, it is not just the responsibility of elders to protect one another from false teaching. We are all accountable to what we believe and to what we choose to do, who we choose to listen to and why. Now, ultimately, of course, the elders are going to be held to a higher standard because that's their job. But we're all expected to exercise discernment. Right? Even as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow after me. They will not listen to the voice of a stranger. And there will be some among us who do. That's what he's saying. Beware. Jesus warned. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Jesus was blood earnest. And he was, they're so concerned about this because they know where this teaching leads. It's not just, don't listen to those guys because they disagree with me. He's saying, don't listen to them because they will destroy you and they will use you and they don't care about you. And when, when, they, when you end up in hell with them, they won't care. They're not going to apologize because they never cared about you in the first place. They just wanted to use you. And so if you're duped by them, nobody's going to care but you in the end. 
And I realize again that hearing these warnings might again just be like hearing about an Ebola outbreak or seeing a smoker's lung. And you might think, hey, I'm not going to smoke. It's not my issue. But false teaching can creep into a church at any time. And we need to know how to discern it. And many of you have come from churches that at one point were known precisely because of their biblical fidelity. That they were churches that you, you could just trust whatever was being taught was the Word of God. And now, you've left them because no longer is the Word of God being taught. That's in one generation. Guys, a church could change in a day. And so it's naive to assume that, it, that false teaching won't creep in here also. And obviously when a church tolerates false teaching or when it even protects false teachers, like that's very clear time you need to go. Like make like Lot's wife, like the angels told Lot's wife, flee to the mountains and don't look back. Because that place is under destruction. That lampstand has been removed. Anytime false teaching is protected, the Lord is no longer the Lord of that church. And it's time to leave. Second, we also need to recognize that false teaching doesn't simply exist in the church. And back in the day, the church may be the only place you would have received instruction. Maybe in a school. Of course, many most schools were actually established by churches, and so they were a place to receive biblical education. Later on, maybe you could receive teaching from a few books that you had in the house or maybe when you went to the library. But today we are bombarded with false teaching in every form of media, in what we listen to, in what we read, in what we watch. Podcasts, radio shows, social media, advertisements. You are being taught false teaching all day long. Now it doesn't advertise itself as such, But you all know that almost every advertisement has as its ploy, you deserve this. But you know you don't. But this is what we're being taught. In in every form of media. And it's not just you that's being taught, your family's being taught, your kids are being taught this. Even if you homeschool your children, they are getting exposed to false teaching through cartoons. Or through the media. And so we need to realize the seriousness of this threat. Because we're being bombarded by information constantly. It's not just in the church. The church needs to protect itself. But it's everywhere. And we need to realize what the real consequence of false teaching is. And help One, we need to be able to discern it for ourselves, but we need to help one another, and especially our children, to be able to discern how to sift truth from error. How to avoid being led astray from the teaching we received. I think due to the mass media, false teaching is a greater threat than it's ever been. And so this this text is a real blessing to us. And it's very straightforward. Three points. Paul presents the the clear defense against false teaching. What can we do to prevent ourselves from being led astray? Then he presents what false teachers teach, the doctrine of false teachers. And then in verses 4 and 5, the inner workings, the desires of false teachers. Let's look, first of all, at 2b, that last phrase in chapter 2 where Paul says, teach and preach these principles. These words, teach and preach, are two well-known Greek words. Didasco, teach, and preach, parakaleo, or to exhort. And you'll notice that both words are in the imperative. These are commands. This is what Timothy and the elders are to do. Teach and preach in order to prevent the people from being led astray by false teaching. And Paul's going to explain these commands in the teaching that follow. And you'll you'll notice that these these commands, teach and preach, they parallel 
those two parallel elements that have come up throughout the book of 1 Timothy. That what an elder needs to do is not only teach and interpret the Bible rightly, but he needs to live it out rightly. Teaching refers to explaining what the Bible means and then exhortation or preaching how to apply that meaning to our lives. And so we need to be doing both. Timothy needs to not only explain the Bible clearly, but also explain what does this look like? And not only explain it, but show it, live it out. What does living the Bible look like in your life? We need both teaching and preaching, teaching in its application. In fact, in the next verse, Paul warns against those who advocate different teaching and teaching that doesn't promote with godliness. Teaching that isn't applied rightly. And frankly, that's why the majority of our worship service is devoted to the teaching of the Word of God and seeking to apply it to our lives. And, and that without any shame at all. Because that's what we need. In fact, teaching is central to all of our community groups and our discipleship groups. We need, we need time in prayer. We need time in fellowship. But we really also need teaching and preaching lest we be led astray. Because as we sung, we're prone to wander. It's through good teaching that we are able to recognize false teaching. You've heard it said a number of times that special agents are able to determine if currency is false, if if it's fraudulent, by studying the real thing. They know what a real dollar bill looks like so well that when they see false currency, they can detect it immediately. The same is true of good teaching. If you're, if you're used to hearing good teaching, when somebody starts to go off a little bit, you're able to say, something's wrong. And you, maybe you can't identify it, but you can just hold it in suspension a little bit in your mind until you can identify what, what is it about what's being said that is an error or that just doesn't sit right with me. We need good teaching and lots of it. The more we have, the better. Just as every physician tells you that the secret to good health is you need a good diet, you need good sleep, and you need exercise. They'll all tell you that. That's the secret to good health. Well, likewise, the secret to good spiritual health is, you won't be surprised by this, lots of time in the Word, rightly interpreted and applied, lots of time in prayer, and lots of time in fellowship. Very simple. And yet, as we know from our experience, how often we're led astray from those simple principles. And just consider how much biblical teaching you're getting in your life right now compared to how much time you're getting in other forms of the media. How much time do you read the Bible in comparison to the news? How much time do you you spend listening to good preaching compared to um, watching a movie or a football game. I mean, just think, how did you spend your time yesterday? And you might think, oh, that's unfair. That's, that's college football day. Okay, well, Friday or Thursday. How much time do you spend immersing yourself in false teaching compared to immersing yourself in good teaching? Again, 2,000 years ago, there's not going to be a lot of false teaching a person's going to get exposed to unless they're going to a church with a false teacher. But today, it's like all day, every day. And we cannot be naive. There's a reason Paul says in the last days, people will be led astray to have their ears being itched and their hearts will go cold. There will no longer be love expressed amongst people. Why do you think that is? Because false teaching is so dominant, even amongst Christians. They bathe in it. And they get a little bit of the word in the morning or a little bit of the word on Sunday. And they think they're going to be fine. That their families are going to be unscathed. That they're going to have 
joy unspeakable throughout the day. Not knowing that they're killing themselves through false teaching. Although Martin Luther started the Reformation in Wittenberg, it was actually the city of Geneva that became the flagship city of the Reformation. And that's largely because John Calvin was the primary teacher in Geneva. Some of you might even have the Geneva Study Bible. What was so impactful about Geneva? Well, I think not only it's because that's where Calvin taught, but the people there took learning very seriously. Calvin actually preached twice on Sundays, in the mornings and in the afternoons. But that's not all. He then preached every morning of the week, every other week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning, Saturday morning. And then he also had actually on Saturday, he preached from the Old Testament. James Montgomery Boyce remarked. Calvin had no weapon but the Bible. Calvin preached from the Bible every day and under the power of that preaching, the city began to be transformed as the people of Geneva acquired knowledge of God's word and were changed by it. The city became as John Knox, who actually studied there under Calvin. The city became as John Knox called it later, a new Jerusalem from which the gospel spread to the rest of Europe, to England and the new world. And it became that way because there was persecution against the reformed teaching throughout Europe. And so people from England and Scotland, that's how Knox ended up in Geneva, would come. And tons of immigrants from France who were fleeing persecution of the Huguenots. And they'd come to Geneva and sit under Calvin's teaching. And many of those men went back into those countries from which they fled in order to preach the word, word rightly. Because they, and many of them died. But they cared more that their brothers and sisters in the faith would be protected from the effects of false doctrine. They were, they, were, they were more worried about the effects of spiritual death amongst their countrymen than they were about their own physical death. What generated such concern? A deep hunger for the Word of God. They immersed themselves in it. And they changed the world because of it. So the, be- the greatest defense against false doctrine is teaching and preaching. Secondly, Paul teaches the doctrine of false teachers. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. He says, if anybody teaches a different doctrine, that's a familiar word, heterodidoscale, literally different teaching. Teaching that's different from what the Bible teaches is what it's saying. In fact, he uses the same word in 1 Timothy 1.3 when he says at the very beginning of this letter, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any other different doctrine. Same teaching. Make sure that there's nobody in your church teaching anything that doesn't line up with what the Bible clearly says. And he explains this in the two phrases that follow. Not in line with the sound words of Christ. That word sound, actually, again, a health word, it means to be healthy. To be well. Or actually, our our word hygiene comes from this Greek word. So there are healthy teachings and there are corrupt or defiled teachings. Unsound teachings. And so how do you know the difference? How do you know if what you're hearing right now is healthy teaching or a corrupt teaching? Well, does the teaching line up with what the Bible actually is saying? Is it really seeking to interpret what the Bible says rightly, especially on difficult topics? Or is it just seeking to conform with what people want to hear? Does the, what is the, does the teaching really seek to interpret 
what the Bible says about women's roles rightly, what the Bible says about slavery, what the Bible says about sexual morality? Is it just trying to conform to what people in general wanted to say? Or is it really striving to rightly explain what it says? Is it lining up with the academics in elite universities and the culture or what celebrities think and say? Or the Bible? So you recognize if right interpretation of the Bible is not the goal of the church anymore, then Christ is no longer the head of that church. It's either the pastor and what he thinks, or it's the surrounding culture, or it's the most outspoken member, or it's the news media, the majority of the people in the church. Whatever is driving the interpretation away from the natural meaning of the text, that is what is actually Lord over the church, of that church. And therefore, it's no longer a Christian church. Because it's no longer seeking to, to honor Christ. Because this is how Christ leads his church. If Christ is the head of the church, the church needs to be submissive to what he says. And if what he says is no longer what is of foremost concern, then following Christ is no longer the primary concern. So the first kind of false doctrine is that which is, just does not line up with what the Bible teaches. The second kind is that which does not produce godliness. Doctrine that does not conform to godliness. Paul, Paul uses the same phrase to describe his role as an apostle in Titus 1.1. When he introduces the book to Titus, he says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul is saying, truth always lines up with godliness. Truth rightly taught will lead to right living. The two go together. So doctrine that does not accord with godliness either means that the teaching actually leads to ungodliness or that the teaching just is so heady, so intellectual, it just doesn't get applied. Or it's, it's not clear how to apply it. It's just information. Right? So if the teaching doesn't lead to godliness, it's false in some sense. Or if it actually leads to immorality, ungodliness, it's clearly false. And we see false teaching that leads to ungodliness in churches that promote idolatry, promote worldliness, promote immorality, greed, rebellion, self-righteousness. These are like the church of Thyatira. You guys know the, the, the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, the first few chapters of that book. Christ writes to the church of Thyatira in verse 19 of chapter 2. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, and I will throw into great tribu tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So this was a real church in the city of Thyatira that had a lot going on for it, but it, it decided to tolerate teaching that promoted ungodliness. And Christ said, I'm not going to put up with it, to paraphrase. Then Jesus addresses the teaching that leads to bad application in the next church, the church of Sardis. He rebukes, re, he rebukes Sardis for receiving good teaching, but then failing to apply it. Revelation 3, verse 1. I know your works, 
You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your works complete in the sight of my God. Not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So teaching that leads to immorality or teaching that just does not get applied, both are false. And Christ will not tolerate that in his church. He'll either just destroy the church or he'll just pick off those in the church that are failing to repent. That's what he's saying. This is a big deal. And and the reason Christ says this is because he loves his church. Because if he doesn't deal with unrepentance, like leaven, like gangrene will spread and more and more people will be taken out in a pandemic that's far worse than COVID or anything else that this world has experienced. So Christ is not only concerned with teaching that tolerates sin, but even teaching that tolerates inertness. A lack of repentance. The expectation is that Christians will grow. Christians will produce fruit. Remember what Christ said in John 15. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. Those are sobering words. They're comforting for those who abide in Christ, but for those who fail to repent, who fail to take His Word seriously, they should be terrifying. They're meant to be. Because He loves His church. Good teaching should result in godliness. And if it doesn't, There's either a problem with the teaching or the teacher or a problem with the recipient. Right? If a tree is bearing bad fruit, either there's something wrong with the water or the tree itself is diseased. Last week, as you know, we celebrated Reformation Day and I mentioned that often Reformed theology is summarized by the five solas. Or five alones. A good way to determine if uh, what is being taught is false is to remember the bookends of those five solas. Sola Scriptura and Soli Deo Gloria. And, and just ask yourself as you listen to teaching. Is the teaching grounded in an accurate interpretation of Scripture? It doesn't believe that the, that, the, that the Bible alone is the authority. Scripture alone. Secondly, what is the end of this teaching? What is this teacher driving at? How does he want me to apply it? What is he seeking? What would success look like? Will it look like to the glory of God alone? Is he trying to generate God, people living for the glory of God and loving God true worship? Or is it something else? The other three G's. Glory of self. Gold. Or girls. What's he driving at? What does he want? The things of this world are the glory of God. See, whenever you hear a sermon or Christian teaching, just ask yourself those two questions. Is this what the Bible really says? And then ask yourself, what's the end? What are they wanting? More money? People to agree with them? People to think they're smart? To be impressed? People to be dependent upon them? 
or for people to trust in Christ and follow Him. So Paul's dealt with what false teachers look like externally, how to protect yourself from false teachers, teaching and preaching. Thirdly, he then gets into the internal anatomy of the false teachers as he speaks to their motives and their desires. He says he's conceited and understands nothing. So first we see that false teachers are conceited. They, they live, they desire self-promotion. That word conceited actually is figurative. It means to raise a smoke, to wrap in a mist. So it speaks metaphorically of a person who's in a beclouded or a stupid state of mind. They're so inflated with their own thinking, they can't even see clearly or straight. False teachers have this inordinate self-confidence. They study the Bible in order to teach the Bible. Not so much to teach the Bible to other people, but to tell the Bible what the Bible itself should say. They study the Bible to teach the Bible. To tell God what is right. What they think is right. I know, you're, I know it says this, but God, I know you can't mean that because that's not what I think. Just an, an inflated, conceited mind. Rather than coming under its authority, they elevate themselves to either be equal with the Bible or above the Bible. And because of their conceit, it says they understand nothing. Now, this doesn't mean that they're stupid. As you know, some of the, the, the most influential false teachers in history have been brilliant men and women. Brilliant. It's not that they're stupid. It's that they don't actually understand what they, what they claim to be teaching. They have no understanding at all. They're just taking the Bible's words and, and twisting them in order to line up with what they wanted to teach. They don't actually understand it. As Paul said in chapter 1, verse 7 of 1 Timothy, they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Right? They actually think they're telling the truth in some cases. They're confident, but they're in complete error. And they don't see it because of their conceit. See, often false teachers hold graduate degrees from prestigious universities. They claim to be experts in the scriptures, but they don't, they don't even understand what it says. And therefore, they certainly don't live lives according to it. And that's exactly why Jesus told his followers, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words does them. I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on a ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Luke chapter 6. So they have no desire to exalt Christ, but in their conceit they desire to promote themselves. So false teachers have a, a, a desire for self-promotion. Secondly, they have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. So they, they desire to create controversy. They like a good argument. They like seeing people get hotter into the collar. They like a good disagreement. They like to war with words. In fact, the word that's used here is they have a sick interest. The word is naseo. It means to be sick. Another health term. And, and sadly, this is, this is exactly what a lot of people think about when they hear the word theology. Oh, you like theology. Ah, 
So you like arguments. You like to fight. You like to make people feel stupid. You like to always prove that you're right and everybody else around you is an idiot. You're a theologian. They think of envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, friction between men when they hear the word theology rather than knowing God. Walking with God. Knowing His will. Loving Him deeper and deeper. Which is what theology is. Theology is about God and delighting in God and knowing God and following His will. It's not about winning arguments. But because some people have a morbid interest to tear down others and to make them feel stupid, they twist theology and and, and use it to be a sword instead of a bomb. That's not to say that the Bible doesn't have things in it that create controversy, obviously. I mean, Jesus himself created controversy and he had no desire to do so. But the truth will do that. But that's not the point. That's not the point of the truth. The truth is to lead towards righteousness. The purpose is to promote biblical clarity and godliness. It's not, it's not just to make people angry and, and to create dissension. In fact, Paul tells Titus, actually go ahead and turn there just a couple pages to the right. Titus chapter 3. This is what Paul tells Titus about controversies. He says in verse 3, 9, But avoid foolish controversies. Avoid them. Genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. And then he says, Note this, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. If there's a person in the church that just loves to get into a good theological argument, not because they're seeking the truth, but just because they love a good fight with words, it's the responsibility of the elders to immediately dismiss them. Warn them. If they don't take the warning, they need to be gone. Because if they won't listen to the word, they show that they really aren't interested in the truth. They just want to cause division. It's one of the strongest warnings in all of Scripture. I mean, it's like skipping immediately to step three of church discipline. And we see that those whom they engage with with such arguments are themselves depraved of mind and deprived of the truth. So Paul here is speaking both of the false teachers and those who listen to them. The people they run with. The people that get ensnared by their nets. He says they have a depraved mind. So that word means they, they are morally destroyed in their mind. That's what depravity is. There's no, they're morally destroyed. Deprived of the truth. The implication is they once possessed the truth. They once had the truth, but they willfully pushed themselves away from it. They had it in their hands and they said, I don't like it. I don't like what it says. Doesn't agree with what mama taught. Doesn't agree with what my... When my urges think, and they walk away from it. They had it. It was in their hands. And they willfully disregarded it because they wanted popularity. Or they wanted to justify some sin. They deprived themselves of the truth. They didn't care about being nourished by the truth as much as using it to achieve their own ends. It's like... They were like prisoners who are given a portion of bread by their jailer. And instead of eating the bread, they push it away from themselves in order to have the the rats that come into their jail cell at night fight over it. And they just are so entertained by seeing the rats fight over the bread 
that they willfully deprived themselves of it. False teachers take what is meant for spiritual nourishment and use it for just intellectual entertainment. And they destroy people. They send people to hell. And it's fun to them. They also thirdly suppose godliness is a mean of gain. They desire gain. They are posing as believers for the sake of using the church for their own worldly gain. In the context, primarily if this is speaking to money, as we'll see in the weeks to come, but really that word can refer to anything this world offers, a greater reputation, popularity, wealth, um, comfort, security, admiration, Anything this world lives for. They're drawn to Christianity because they see, hey, here is a means to get what I always wanted. I couldn't get it on my own in the world by hard labor, but I can dupe a lot of these fools in the church and use them to get what I wanted in the world. People who the world would reject me and realize I'm just, I'm a fool, I'm a raving fool, but, but maybe Christians will listen. They see Christ as a means to an end, one who will offer them a better life. In contrast, those who are drawn to Christ because they recognize that He is their Savior and their Lord and that that, that without Him, they deserve the wrath of God as eternal punishment. And so unless they repent and submit to them, they will be eternally punished those people will follow Him no matter what the cost. The false teacher, he sees the wolf coming and he flees. He's only concerned about himself. Jesus said in John 6, actually the Apostle writes, After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So this text is is a warning about false teachers. But there's a latent warning, not just about Beware of the teachers that are out there that want to seduce you and draw you away from the truth. But there's a latent warning for each of us. We need to be aware of the motives of our own hearts. See, it it wasn't just that Satan asked Eve, did God really say? It was that Eve saw the tree and that its fruit was a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. And then she took and ate. She bought into the false teaching because of what was going on in her heart. It justified her longings. And that's why she was duped. So this isn't just a warning that there are bad guys out there. This is a warning that you need to be on guard against anything that, that would lead you to say yes to that which you know to be wrong. Don't take that lightly. Don't let such serpents into your gardens. False teaching is attractive precisely because it appeals to us. We want to hear it. We want Somebody to say, yes, this is good. You, you can follow this. It will make you happy. You deserve this. We like to hear that. But it's poison. And we need to recognize that it's poison. This is how bait works. Right? Bait works because the fish are attracted to it. False teaching works because 
we want to believe it. So we need to guard ourselves. It's critical to defend ourselves against false teachers through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And to get as much as we possibly can. Secondly, we need to recognize the doctrine of false teachers. Any doctrine that does not line up with what the Bible is means in its normal interpretation, and any doctrine that leads to ungodliness, we need to ignore. And we need to realize the desire of false teachers. That they desire to promote themselves in their conceit. That they like to create controversy. And that they will lead other people astray through their desire for a worldly gain. Let's pray. Lord, these are sobering words, especially when we consider the cost. Lord, there's not sufficient emotion to generate the the, the sobriety and the warning that we need to have, not only against false teaching, but even our own hearts. And so we ask just for your mercy that you would guard us vigilantly, be our shepherd. Lord, we, we know that your love is not for the institution of the church as it is for the people, the sheep in the church. And we pray that you would protect all of us here as your sheep. That none of us would be led astray into false teaching. That none of our children would be enslaved by error and fall away from the truth. And God, give us wisdom to discern that we might see the error before it creeps into our homes, before it creeps into our teaching. Lord, so that we all might make it safely home, that none of us would perish in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.